All right, welcome back to another episode of ICU Doc Talk. Thanks for listening. Uh, today I'm going to do a topic that was suggested by a listener, which I think is a fantastic topic. This is by this is from Michael, last name withheld, who sent me a, a great email. Uh, and I'm just going to read what his suggestion is, and we're going we're gonna to just talk about this today. He says, uh, I think it would be interesting to discuss the role that religion and spirituality plays in delivering care in an ICU. I think that spirituality, both theistic and atheistic alike, makes up a large part of a patient's life. And I'd be interested in hearing about how spirituality manifests itself in an ICU setting. So, Michael, I think that is just such a, a phenomenal topic that we're going to talk about today. Uh, I don't really know what ang- angle I'm going to approach this at. I'm going to just just free, just improvise this. I don't really, I never, I don't prepare for these. I just, I just shoot off the hip and just talk. Um, so I will, so I, I think it, this is such a, an important topic. And in medicine, sometimes in, in, in the medical, medical world, we're a little too sterile with how we uh, approach patients from a medical standpoint. And sometimes we forget the human aspect of patients and that, uh, I, okay, right up front, here's what I'm going to say. We, in, as healthcare providers, we often see, and I won't, I'll, I won't speak for everybody, but I think sometimes in medicine, we see someone's spirituality uh, as a liability to their care, like it's, it's obstructing good care. I think that is, I, now, again, I don't think that's across the board, but I do think that is uh, sometimes an attitude because it's like, oh, well, Mrs. So-and-so's family won't let her, let her die, you know, let her pass away because they think God is, et cetera, you know, whatever, whatever it is, they have this uh, reasoning. So they, and then there's kind of an eye roll associated with that, right? I'm just, this is just a generic made up scenario, but it, but it's based on real events. Um, so I'll, you know, I'll just say that up front. I, I, th- I think in healthcare, we, we don't include it as part of their, uh, someone's dying process. Uh, to, we don't do it enough. We do, we do it. We do it. Like, it's not like it's completely ignored. Um, and, and now this topic that I'm going to talk about today. So I, I do want to be fully transparent about my beliefs. Okay. So I'm, I'm an, I, I'm a critical care doctor. I'm an anesthesiologist. I, I, uh, have helped many, many people pass away and their families. Um, and my personal, I think it's important to say what my personal beliefs are. So I am not, I, I am a theist. I am Christian and I believe in God. Um, and I think I can say with full honesty that uh, I, I'm almost certain that my personal uh, spiritual beliefs don't really impact me as a practitioner uh, and my decision making about like, oh, God, like, <laughs> like I'm not like, uh, oh, God, I think we need to keep you alive because God, I don't believe. And like I, I can say with almost total certainty that my own personal belief system does not impact my care of end of life, uh, with other patients. I, my, I'm a, I am about autonomy of the patient and the patient's family. And I do what they say for better or worse, right? Oftentimes it's for worse to do what they say and do what a patient's family says, because a patient's family is often making decisions, not always, but it, they're making decisions that are in their interest, um, and not in the patient's interest. They want to keep their loved one alive because they love their loved one. They love them, right? I, I don't, I don't want to be overly critical of this. It's understandable, right? We love the people that are closest to us. We love them. We don't want to see them go. We don't want to say goodbye to them. Um, and and saying goodbye to our loved ones, your your spouse, your partner, your brother, your father, your mother, it's the hardest thing you'll ever do in your life, right? There's nothing harder than that. And uh, we don't want to do it, right? So we, um, I think the instinct is to 
want to wait and hang on and to and to wait for a miracle and to and people wait on God uh, whatever their version of God is right and I've and I've had patients of across the religious spectrum every religion you can think of from paganism you know obviously Christian because I'm in the United States we're a Christian dominant nation um, Muslim Jew whatever every every uh, denomination you can think of and and you know ethos I've had patients of that um, and it's all the same it's it is what I can say across the board, uh, it doesn't matter what religion you are. People don't want to say goodbye to their family, right? Because it's just part of being a human. It doesn't have anything to do with religion, really. You just don't want to say goodbye. And I, I, I think people use their uh, religion or their spirituality, whether con- you know unconsciously or not conscious of it, they are waiting on God and their or their version of God or who God is to them to tell them if it's okay. And, and often people are waiting for miracles. I'm going to talk about miracles. Okay. And here's a spoiler alert right now. I don't think I've seen a miracle a single time, not once in medicine. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to report. I'm sorry to report that it doesn't happen. <laughs> it really doesn't happen. So I, I'll say, I'll say this. I have been definitely surprised before that someone has survived. And maybe that could be described as a miracle because it's, because it was against, it was a, because it's a, What's okay? Let me let me just say this. What is one person's miracle is another person's statistical anomaly. That's what's going on. It's a statistical anomaly. When against all odds, I think someone's going to die. And I'm like, yeah, they're going to die. And and when I talk to patients' family, when I think someone's going to die, right? If they have a lactate of twenty and they're on a bunch of pressors, for those that don't know, a lactate means their body is highly underperfused and their organs are not getting blood flow. And there's there's telltale signs that someone is. Uh, who's critically ill is about to die. And uh, what was my point? I'm forgetting. Uh, oh, yeah. So when I'm, you know, when I tell a family, I think they're, uh, uh, I'm pretty sure they're going to die. I'm always like, I'm pretty doom and gloom about it. it. That's always the better stance to take because people are, they probably are going to die. Anyway, my point is I have been surprised. Like, whoa, this person did turn around. Oh my gosh, they got better. Doesn't mean they left the hospital alive, right? That's another thing to think about. So maybe I've definitely witnessed someone who is critically ill that I think is going to die turn around. Uh, sure, that happens. It definitely happens. It's 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 statistically less likely, but it does happen. But then and but then you got to zoom out. Don't don't just look at that one moment and be like, hey, that was a miracle. Zoom out in two weeks. Are they still alive? They're probably not. Something else. That, that per, someone who is trying to die will keep trying to die. Meaning their body is done. Their disease process has come to a head. And so they may have gotten out of that one critical moment, but they're going to bounce back to the ICU a week later and die then. Okay. Now, do people do leave the hospital that are critically ill and bounce back? Yeah, of course it does happen. But again, even more statistically rare. So that might be a miracle for some people. And I have no problem. I'm not um, saying I'm against that uh, a patient or patient helping think that that's a miracle. It maybe it is a miracle, right? So again, I believe in God. And uh, maybe that family prayed to God and God granted them a miracle. I actually, I, <clears throat> I don't have a problem thinking that. I don't think from where I'm standpoint, it is not a miracle. Um, because I, it's a statistical anomaly. Uh, maybe that's pessimistic or whatever, but it's just realistic. So the spoiler alert is miracles do not, I don't think they happen in medicine. Okay, I, there's not like a there's not these moments of clarity where the, the hand of God is reaches over me and I do this and that, you know, that's never happened. Let me just dispel that. 
Doesn't happen. By and large, people get sick and they die. That is the reality. Death is a part of this life. You cannot avoid it. Um, it is. It is a part of mortality. Okay. Now let me just. Uh, <clears throat> I'll kind of want to back up more to this. Uh, I, I'm going to get. About, I'll probably talk more about miracles, or maybe I won't. I don't. I don't know where I'm going with this. But uh, with healthcare providers, <clears throat> so so you know, medicine and healthcare, right? It's it's an academic institution, right? People are trained academically, and you know. People are get are highly educated. I'll just say, let's just say, say doctors, right? There's nurses and respiratory therapists and pharmacists. All these people are highly educated and trained people. But I'll just use doctors as an example, right? So I went to a four-year college, studied chemistry. I went to four-year medical school. I did four-year residency. I did a year critical care. Like it's, it's a bunch of training, right? And it's a it's a bunch of training to get me to think uh, analytically and to get me to think dispassionately about things, uh, and to like sometimes take the human aspect out of things. And here's what ha- I think what happens. Let me just, okay. Let me just try to get to what I'm saying. Academia, academics, largely discount religion in American lives. I'm talking about America, but also globally, right? Reli- Christianity and specifically in the United States and religion play an enormous part in people's lives. And you see it in mainstream liberal-leaning media constantly discounting how important uh, religion is to American lives. It is it is unbelievably important. And the the left uh, and liberal academia, I think, to their to their uh, um, downfall. I mean, it's the wrong word. They completely discount how how incredibly crucial people's spirituality and Christianity specifically um, in, in the United States, but other religions as well is, uh, is to Americans. And I think, I think people, I think academics um, and left-leaning academics have an enormous blind spot to how important religion is. And I think you see it in medicine and I think you see it in politics all the time. You see reports from left-leaning media sources that are like, Oh, religion's on decline Oh, it's going to be dead soon. Are you kidding me? No, it's not. Do you, do you understand anything about Americans? <laughs> it's just, it's laughable when people say that, oh, okay, so maybe attendance is down and that's what we're reporting. I'm like, give me a break. Religion is alive and well in the United States, for better or worse, right? Religion has awful, awful influence, right? White Christian, Christian nationalism is a toxic influence in the United States. All right, I'm getting, obviously I'm getting all, uh, getting on a tangent here i i just i get a little sick of the the liberal blind spot on how important uh and compl- not even addressing religion and god in people's lives it's ridiculous like people are religious creatures by and large most people are religious creatures i i i, I don't think that's inaccurate to say okay anyway let's uh, talking about patients and patients families that are religious now I mean, there's a difference. There's there's religion. There's ethics. There's morals. The, all, all these things are are related, um, obviously. And one of the points that I already made is that it doesn't matter what religion someone has or what religion they do not have if they're non-denominational. Everybody wants to see their loved ones live longer. Uh, that that goes that without a doubt. So that influences people. People will. Uh, what I observe is people will use whatever religious principle it is that they have that will, um, they'll, they'll, 
like they'll use a mechanic of the religion to then use that as a way to be like, well, we need to keep going because of X, um, you know, or God doesn't want us to do this or God or, or we can't make, we can't go to, a lot of this has to do with going to comfort care, right? So comfort care, if you're not familiar, is when you stop aggressive measures, you stop what you're doing, you stop the ventilator, you stop everything you're doing to support someone's life and you let them pass away without the support. That's comfort care. Oftentimes that's called, we refer to that as withdrawal. Or we try not to with, we refer to it as withdrawal of care. But that's what people think of it as. I think it's better to think of it as you're stopping the things that are keeping them alive and you're letting them pass away naturally. And we call that comfort care, at least in the United States and at least at most hospitals. So a lot of people will use their religion. All right. Or maybe I'll say their faith because religion and faith are different. In fact, I should make that distinction, right? Religion is a human institution. Okay. Every religion it's a human institution. Um, faith is a, is a personal thing. And faith means completely different things from person to person to person to person, right? And now I'm no atheist, but I, I think, and I'm sure atheists would also be yelling at me. Uh, atheism itself has a, it seems to have a spirituality. It seems to have um, a faith. And eh, maybe that's the wrong thing to say. I don't know. I don't want to, I don't want to. Um, I'm not, I haven't. I haven't thought this through enough to really talk about it, I guess. Um, anyway, let me just, let me backtrack. Let me backpedal out of that area um, before I get a bunch of atheists emailing me, which is fine. You can email me. I don't care. Um, what am I, what am I talking about? So people will use different components. Oh yeah. Okay. Sorry. I'm getting all mixed up. So there's religion, there's faith, there's doctrine, right? There's policy of a church. All these things are different. Um, they're all related, but they're different. And people can will use maybe different doctrines of their religion to make an excuse. Now I'm calling it an excuse, but they're they're not. They're it's not an excuse for them. It's a legitimate concern that they may have, and they're mixing it with their faith. And then it's all guilt is wrapped up into all of this guilt and shame of being the decision maker to let their loved one go. Um, people definitely feel like they're uh, often not always. They definitely feel like they're killing their loved ones when when we let them go to comfort care. And so they'll use different aspects of their religious doctrine, the dogma, to be like, God doesn't want them to die. Or we will, our religion doesn't allow for us to do this because um, it needs to be in God's hands. Right. And another thing about all this is logic does not, let me just, I've talked about it, I think, in another podcast. Logic and religion and faith do not, uh, are not in harmony, Right. And I say this to my loved ones and friends that maybe aren't religious or they don't understand faith. They don't understand what faith is. <clears throat> if, you, if you are trying to understand religion and faith from a logical standpoint, that is a fool's errand and you should stop right now. There's no reason to do that. that. These are incompatible. Logic and faith are not compatible. They're not compatible. They're different. They occupy different spots of your brain. <laughs> logic and faith. Right? These are just not incompatible things. As soon as you try to try to, if you're trying to have faith in something by trying to figure it out logically, you that is a failed endeavor. You will see the it, very quickly along that journey, you will see the cracks uh, of your religious institution, the flaws and the foibles of whatever religious institution it is that you're maybe trying to be an adherent to. You'll see those cracks. You'll see those flaws because you're trying to logically wrap your mind around it. You will become disenchanted. You'll have a faith crisis, and you will no longer be interested in that religion. That, I mean, that, that will happen 100% of the time. If you're trying to use pure logic to have faith in something, these are incompatible ideas. Uh, wow, I'm really, um, 
really going off some t- some tangents here. Uh, what well, what am I even talking about? Uh, oh yeah, so okay, so people will be like going to comfort care. They'll be like, well, God doesn't want us to do this because uh, they wanted to pass away naturally or something like that. It's like, well, I don't say these things, but my opinion about that. Now, I want to be, be clear. I am deeply respectful of people's religion, okay? And I'm deeply respectful of their absence of religion. I'm deeply deeply respectful of their spirituality. Whatever they want, I, I am there to cater to it. That That is an important thing that I do as, their, as a critical care physician. Um, but my thought is, well, they're already in an unnatural state right now. Like, we're literally supporting their... They would have already died. If, if they didn't come to the hospital, God... They would have said goodbye to God like like three hours ago. God God already like they naturally a lot of it's an a lot of it is an, an appeal to nature fallacy, which is a fall, it's a logical fallacy appeal to nature. Like it, things must have happen naturally, which just because something is natural doesn't mean it's good. Now I'm getting I'm, I'm all mixed up in my thoughts again. Uh, but anyway, so people will use this uh, religious certain religious aspects as an excuse or as a as a way to to uh, to stop the cognitive dissonance in their heads that I, I can't say goodbye to my loved one. Um, so we can't, we have to do chest compressions as they die, right? So I've been in situations where someone has metastatic disease, widely metastatic cancer, um, you know, a patient, and they, uh, they come in, they were walking a week ago with their family, and they were having a good time with their family, and now they are, whatever it is, they have a bowel obstruction and they have bowel ischemia and a surgeon will not operate on it because it's pointless and they're dying. They have a breathing tube in their kidney failure. Their liver is they're in shock liver. Maybe they're in hypoxemic arrest. It's a dying body. It's a person who is dying and you'll have a patient's family who is like, we can't say goodbye. We have to do everything we can. We cannot make them DNR, which is do not resuscitate. Meaning if they lose their pulse, that we do chest compressions. Because we, because God wants us to, you know, our religion dictates that you have to do everything. You can't let them go because that's euthanasia or that's suicide, right? People are so morally conflicted, and I am, I totally understand why they're conflicted. They don't. Many people don't think about these things their entire lives, and they're so morally conflicted. Um, so, oftentimes, here's the, and this is frustrating, right? It's frustrating for people taking care of this patient because we all know we know that someone like that they're, they're going to die now they might get out they might turn a corner and i think i already said that they might turn a corner of this current critical illness like this widely metastatic disease patient maybe they'll even get extubated um, and that would be wonderful because then maybe they could even talk to their family that would be absolutely wonderful that patient is still going to die and they'll probably die a day later or a week later they are 100% still going today. Um, it may it may not be right at this moment. It may, it may be a week from now. I don't know. Uh, but it's probably going to be right now. Like, it's probably now-ish that they're going to die, particularly if we stop care. Um, so sometime, so this is frustrating for us because we know it's not the right thing for the patient. We believe it's not, right? I'm willing to be challenged on that, and I do get challenged on that. I sometimes get some physicians on TikTok that, are critical that, you know, I don't put someone, you know, an 80 year old on ECMO or something. That's another topic for another time. But, um, so you have these religious, man, sorry, I don't know what I'm saying. Um, you get in these moments where you're like, well, we have to be full code in the United States. We're so in the, in Europe and other parts of the country of the world, 
the healthcare teams can be like, no, we're done, and they stop care. Um, now, I'm not saying that's better, uh, but I know that's a system that's done elsewhere. And I and healthcare workers generally know when someone's going to die. So we'll get in the situation where we're doing chest compression. You know, someone codes, uh, and we're doing chest compressions. Now, sometimes I have to tailor make this and I will tell the family we will do and I tell them there's got there is a time when you need to stop asking the family and you just need to tell them there is a time when that does happen. Um, And this is one of those scenarios where I tell them we will do one round of chest compressions and they and if they don't come back, then we will let them go. And I got to say that often goes very well. Because here's what here's what happened, or you know one or one or two rounds. Sometimes they say two rounds. Um, now, I'll just tell a story that, uh, that's gonna reiterate what I'm. No, actually, I shouldn't. Um, but we'll do like one or two chest compre- One, you know, a round of chest compressions is two is two minutes. So sometimes we'll offer we'll do one or two rounds and then we'll stop. And oftentimes that goes over well because they're like, well, we'll leave it up to God. We will leave it up to God. Uh, and we'll put it in God's hands. And then if they pass away, if they don't come back, if they don't, if their pulse does not come back after that, then God truly wants them to pass away. And I don't have a problem. You kind of have to do, sometimes you have to do this a la la carte um, and end of life care for people that are, you know, religious people that are, that are thinking this way. Right. Now, not all religious people are the same, right. And not all people of the same religion are the same. Every, every family is unique and every, uh, Every situation is unique, and that's why you need to treat every situation as unique. There's no template. There is no template to end-of-life care. Don't, there's no template in your head to use. You just you have to get to know the family. You have to get to know their values and their belief systems. And you have to do what they you, – you, you, there may maybe, maybe some compromising going on with the healthcare team and the patient's family. And that's what you need. Now, the goals the goals, should, the goals are that the, patient, that the patient should pass away without suffering. But part of that goal, a secondary goal, is the patient should also have as as little trauma, psychological trauma as possible as their loved one passes away. And a lot of this has to do with doing things in accordance with the religious beliefs. And I'm very, very happy. And not only happy, I want to oblige people with their religious beliefs. Now, if that includes uh, being involved with a prayer with them, I absolutely will, right? Uh, I, I delight in that. That's not. I, I will do anything for a patient my only rule is with that is is uh, I will do it if it's equal to another patient. Like if another patient family wanted me to ask to do the same thing, I would do that same thing. Like participate in a spiritual or religious activity. I would do that. Um, I would do that for any patient at any time and have. Um, okay, I'm getting a little lost here. So I think I'll s- skip. I think I'll just move on from the topic because I don't think I'm really <laughs> articulating myself. Um, but so I will say, I will say it is common that a patient's family's religion obstructs a patient from passing away in a timely and peaceful manner. I'm, I am sad to report that, but I do think that's true, that it is more common. Now I don't have statistics. This is my own anecdotal experience, but it is more common. And I'm saying this as a religious person, right? I've said, I'm a person of faith. I believe, uh, on average, it is someone's religion and their religious beliefs that actually obstructs a patient's family from letting them go and for them passing away as peacefully as possible, unfortunately. Um, Because I think people are, they don't want to let go. A lot of this has to do with fear of death. 
uh, Americans, and I mostly can just speak for Americans because I've mostly lived in America most of my life in America. Americans, and probably most people, are afraid of death, which I understand. Death is scary. Uh, they're afraid of death. They're afraid of dying, and they're afraid of their loved ones dying. Americans often do not talk about death. They don't talk about their demise. They don't talk about their loved ones' demise. Um, and they're terrified of letting go of their loved ones. <clears throat> right? So a lot of this has to do with just fear of death. And I don't know how to, you know, I can't help. I can't work through everybody's fear of death in this moment that the, at the end, end of the lives of their their loved one. So there must be a compromise made. So what about my own, uh, so as a practitioner, as a clinician, what about my own, so I, you know, I'm a person of faith. How does it impact me? So as I said, I do not, I don't really think miracles happen (laughs) in medicine. Maybe they do. I, I, maybe I'm too, uh, I'm too deep in it and I can't see the miracles. Uh, maybe the miracles are, is modern medicine. Right, the fact that we're even having this discussion about your loved one who's still alive right now is a miracle. Uh, by means of of modern medicine, which, by the way, I I always see this. Uh, um. Lot, so it's a lot of people make fun of religion, right? <clears throat> and I see this uh, attitude sometimes, where it's like, oh God, um, where a patient's family is like, they'll say to, for example, they like their family members going to surgery. And there's a surgeon there and they're like, oh, I hope, the family member's like, I hope that my brother does well. It's in God's hands. And then there's this attitude like, no, it's in the surgeon's hands. Who's gone, who's gone through all this uh, ivory tower learning, blah, 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 blah. It has nothing to do with God. And it's like, come on, just, that is so arrogant. <laughs> like, like, you know what they mean. Like, they're not, people aren't discounting your, you know, medicine's abilities as well. Like, these things can, we can live in a world at the same time where you can have a belief in God and the belief and the hand of God in, in our lives and in the belief of modern medicine. And, and also they may be all the same part. They might, they may be all the same whole, you know what I mean? So I, so yeah, just talking about my own faith and how it's involved. I mean, it's kind of not, <clears throat> it's kind of not like, do I pray at work? Rarely. I do sometimes. When I'm about to do something that that uh, a patient's life depends on my ability to do it, I will sometimes say a prayer to myself, uh, a brief prayer. Be like, please, just you know, oh my gosh, help help me uh, do this thing for this. I do, I do. That's kind of the only time I I do say a prayer, um, and it's not that often. Um, but when I participate in prayers with families, I I am sincere, like in my heart, you know, in my bosom. I am sincere uh, when when I'm participating in like a prayer for someone. Uh, who's approaching end of life. Now, do I pray if someone's going to like pass away, if I'm trying to save someone, like, oh, please save them. No, absolutely not. I do not. <clears throat> right? Because one of my one of my things, uh, if I had to boil down my beliefs, for anyone that cares, I believe in three things. Uh, fundamentally, I believe in uh, um, eternity. I believe in compassion. Um, and I believe in free will. I think those are three uh, basic fundament, fu- fundamental things of the universe that I believe exist. Compassion, eternity, and free will. I think all things are, and there is no end. I believe that uh, compassion is the ultimate um, 
I just believe is it, compassion is the ultimate, uh, ultimately pervades the universe. And I believe uh, we have choice. Why do I believe those things? Who cares? I, I, this, is, uh, this is faith, right? It doesn't matter. It's not logic. I just believe these, these are just things I believe about the universe. Um, anyway, I don't pray for someone to come back or to save someone, right? <clears throat> because uh, as of someone who believes in God, I also don't believe in trying to get God to do what I want, right? That's not faith. When someone's praying that way or using faith in that way, that I, I think that's not, I don't think that's appropriate. Um, I just don't think that that's not how I do. It's not what I do. Um, so I think death, just to reiterate, go, going back to it, death happens and uh, you're going to die and mortality, you know, dying is a part of mortality and you cannot halt that. You cannot stop that. Um, but having said all these things, I do believe in God um, and I do have faith in in a compassionate person that is there and pervades the universe um, in in ways that uh, I don't think we understand. And I think the universe is complex and compassionate in ways that we haven't even begin to don't even begin to understand. Um, those are my own personal beliefs. But honestly, my faith does not impact my judgment as a clinician. I do not think that. Uh, maybe it does, and I'm just not aware. But I don't think it does. I think to boil it down, this rambling discussion I've had is uh, religion, faith, and religion of patients should be respected and decisions about end-of-life care should be made with respect of their decision uh, and without mocking them with other staff members you know in the back room no mockery should be happening and oftentimes this involves some sort of compromise with their end-of-life care in the United States again in other countries sometimes they can just be like no now I will say no to things okay if a patient is dying and there's no point, I, I'm not going to put that patient on dialysis. And I will tell the patient's family, no, no, we're not putting them on dialysis. They're, they're going to die. We're not going to prolong their lives. No, we're not going to put it in a trach. They're going to die. That, that discussion does happen. I do say those things. Um, and sometimes I need to, sometimes I will get nephrology, the kidney doctors, to also say no with me, right? There are some things that are pointless to, so there has, there's, some, there's compromises on both sides. Family has to make compromises sometimes, like, oh, they're not going to offer dialysis. Like, just no, it's a no, we're not going to offer this. And I do that, right? Uh, it's it just, again, there's no template. You got to get to know the family. You got to get to know what their values are um, and and work with them and be genuine. Talk to them like a normal person. Don't talk to them like you're a concierge at a, don't, don't talk to them in the, that, that sterile professional tone. Talk to them like you're talking to your friend in your living room. Uh, because people are extremely good at knowing whether they're being bullshitted. They're extremely good at it. Everybody has an extremely good, everybody. We all know when someone is, is not treating us, uh, with, with, uh, um, is not being genuine with us. Everybody is really good at that. So just talk to them like you're, like they're a friend in your living room and you're heading over for dinner and that you have bad news for them. Uh, anyway, I think that's all I'm going to say about this topic. There's obviously much more to talk about, and I <clears throat> barely am scratching the surface and, of what was mostly just kind of a rant. <laughs> so take from what I said. Take from it whatever you would like. There may be nothing for you there, but that's fine. Um, let's talk about a book now. Um, last week I did a not I did a fiction review, which uh, had a lot of positive response. People like that. So I actually think I'm going to do 
I'm going to start doing, if I have time, two book reviews every week, one nonfiction and one fiction. I'll start with the nonfiction because uh, I think nonfiction probably has a broader audience of people that want to listen to it. And then I'll leave the fiction review at the end of the podcast so people that don't care about my stupid sci-fi and fantasy stories can hop off at their convenience. So let's uh, let's get to a book. Let's see here. All right. A uh, nonfiction book is called The French Revolution from Enlightenment to Tyranny by Ian Davidson. This is about 330 pages. It was published July 2016. Um, so I knew embarrassingly little about the French Revolution and still know embarrassingly little despite <clears throat> having re- I listened to the audiobook. Uh, so before I read this, and as I said, I still know very little about it, um, but I, I did find this book mostly accessible, but um, I got lost when it got into the weeds of a lot of the political factions that happened after the initial evolution of this revolution, but I was still happy I went through this. One of the main points of the author is that the French Revolution, which happened around 1790s, was started, was actually started as a bourgeois revolution against the ancien monarchy regime, the, the, monarch, the monarchy, right, at the time. It was kind of a bourgeois lawyer, like, uh, kind of like an elite revolution is how it actually kind of started. The French Revolution has this... Um, reputation right because you have storming of bastille and all that of being like of the people or revolt which it also did was that but it started as an elite a revolution an elite revolution against the ancien monarchy Uh, it started basically of with rich lawyers and politicians that they started the revolution Uh, but the before the actual revolution there were three political bodies of government at the time the estates general each representing the nobles uh, the Catholic clergy and the commoners. That was the state's general. The commoners were sick of taxes, right? Like most revolutions sometimes can happen. Um, and there was rising antipathy for the king, which probably leveraged political power into the middle bourgeois class to start changes from within the government. So I, I think the bourgeois class leveraged that commoner resentment into the political rhetoric to bring up uh, to pass the fall of the ancien monarchy so after the storming of the bastille the estates general formed the national assembly which was the new political revolutionary body and it was mostly ruled by the by the prior third estate uh, of the, the commoners or so they said that they represented the king agreed to the national assembly with a constitution with a constitution by the way was which was never implemented um, and there's even a state salary to the king. So it became more of like a nanny state to the king. The National Assembly effectively abolished feudalism and monarchical rule and kept the king on a leash. Obviously, the king did not like that or his supporters. A mob literally forced the king to move from Versailles to Paris, where I guess they'd have more like control or oversight over him. And then <clears throat> really bonkers things started to happen. The National Assembly nationalized the Catholic Church. <laughs> and church property and then tied government bonds to church assets let me repeat that this new government nationalized the catholic church and church property and then tied government bonds to church assets just sit there with me for a moment and think about what a terrible idea that is on many many levels uh for one thing as an economic <laughs> as an economic foundation you can't 
what are you going to liquidize the church <laughs> church assets to back like instead of a having your money tied to a treasury it's tied to church assets and then the church is controlled by the state these are bad ideas like so fundamentally such terrible ideas aside from widespread clerical rebellion that this caused this is an this was an untenable economic foundation that obviously led to distrust and inflation stoking more public discontent in the largest population of Europe at the time was right was in France. The state also wanted the clergy to take an oath of allegiance to the revolution and many, many did not, which created widespread dissent. The other European powers got really worried about the French Revolution happening and started trying to make war. So not only were there the French Revolutionary Wars, they sparked, but there was the French Civil War, which was happening during this time as well. What eventually happened was a police state run by a single political party, the Jacobins with Robespierre at its head. The terror followed, caused by anti-revolutionary panic, which is a theme we see many, 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 many times in China and in Russia and in many, where you have, you have a revolutionary party, a vanguard party, whatever you want to call it, that comes in and takes over a monarchy, and then they install themselves. And then you have anti, you have, you have a counter-revolution, and then you have that anti-counter-revolutionary panic, which is use it as an, as an excuse to then basically slaughter millions of people, right? This is what happened with Mao. Anyway, so Robespierre was eventually, he was, there was the same thing going on here. He was eventually guillotined himself by, I don't know, his political enemies. I really don't know the, the specifics of why. <laughs> but what followed, according to this author, was nearly 100 years of political and social strife with nine to 10 different constitutions written and dozens of different governments. The author actually feels like uh, the revolution lasted 150 years. I feel like the history of revolutions often follow a familiar pattern. Okay, You have wealth inequality, you have cultural discontent, and poverty, which are leveraged into political dissent and revolution. You have the old system cast away, you have a provisional government, you have revolutionary government overreach with its own brand of tyranny, you then have counter-revolution, and they have lots of bad stuff happen, like civil war and genocide. You have the revolutionary government that is now installed becomes a worse version of the government they replaced. And then the revolution collapses. <laughs> the cycle repeats, right? This happens a lot. So anyway, I still don't know, as I said, a lot about the French Revolution. But this book wasn't a bad beginning for me. And I want to learn more uh about this totally crazy series of events that probably affected the entire modern world and it has lasting influence to today so i do recommend it there's probably better books to read about the french revolution if you know any please tell me because i want to read them so this was called the french revolution by ian davidson all right let's get to a letter i'm going to do a fiction review to the very end of this same podcast so stay tuned for that but i'm going to do a letter and answer a question from a listener this is by sean last name of help with help uh, he says, I'm a big fan of your TikTok. Just subscribe to your podcast. I'm an EMS chief for a fire department in the United States somewhere. We are currently updating our countywide protocols, and I was looking for your opinion on the induction dosing for RSI, which is rapid sequence in, uh, intubation of critically ill patients. Our induction medications options are ketamine, etomidate, versed, and fentanyl, plus the paralytics of succinylcholine or rocuronium. What doses would you recommend in patients with low MAP? Uh, mean arterial pressure or TBI, traumatic brain injury, assuming we are simultaneously resuscitating. Thank you. So, so all, any of those induction drugs are great, right? I, I, I answered this email 
also, I won't read the whole email that I answered, but um, I think one of my, I think one of the goals when you're trying to get control of someone's airway in an emergent setting, if you're an EMS, is your your one of the main things you're worried about is hemodynamic instability, right? Because someone is in, they're probably they may be in a shock state. You don't know what kind of shock state they're in, and you're worried about hemodynamic instability. And induction agents themselves can cause cardiac collapse and can kill someone in this setting, as this person knows who's emailing. So any of those induction agents are fine. Um, I think one of the things that sometimes doesn't get appreciated is even though so you have these. You have like ketamine and tomidate are induction agents that are supposedly hemodynamically stable. And I think they are. And they theoretically are. And pharmacologically, they are. However, someone's sympathetic drive could be the only thing that's keeping their systemic vascular resistance, their SVR, up, which is the only thing that's keeping them their blood pressure, giving them a blood pressure and perfusing their body, their sympathetic drive, their fight or flight response. And so just by virtue of sedating them, you can uh, tank their blood pressure. Even if even by giving them a tomate. Um, so if someone's in hem hemorrhagic shock, which they often are, right, in, in the field, they're bleeding out. Maybe they could be in vasodilatory, uh, uh, vasodilatory shock, like they're in septic shock or something like that. And just their fight or flight response is keeping their blood pressure up. So, so sometimes all you can do is give them a little versed and an apology, and then you paralyze their body, and they may be aware of it, you know. Um, what I recommend, and I was my main answer to him in an e this this person in email was, give, just chase what, whatever it is you give. So I, I've intubated many, many critically ill patients that are on the verge of dying, and I'm always concerned that my induction agents are going to kill them. Chase it with a vasoactive, something vasoactive, whether that's phenylephrine or ephedrine. I often just give epinephrine. I will give 10 mics of epinephrine. I have it in my pocket, and I just chase it with it. Be, uh, 10 mics of epinephrine never hurt anybody. Maybe if they're bleeding out, if they have the brain bleed, if they have like a uh, unsecured aneurysmal brain bleed, yeah, that might hurt. But by and large, it's you're mostly going to, you're just going to give them a little bit of support while you intubate them. And then and then you'll also give them a sympathetic response while you, you know, rake on their vocal cords. Um, so I, this is a big topic, right? I could do, I should probably do a whole uh, episode about induction agents. Uh, in fact, I probably should do that. But anyway, just chase it with something vasoactive. That's that's my main that's my main answer there. All right, uh, now I'm gonna get to uh, fiction book review, and this is a fantasy book, but it's kind of not fantasy. It's called The Winter King by Bernard Cornwell. Um, for you, those of you that don't care, you can stop listening because this podcast is over for you. Uh, but keep on listening if you want to hear about this book, which is amazing. It's one of my favorite books ever. It's a it's from the Warlord Chronicles. It's a trilogy, and I've read the whole trilogy, and it is amazing. It's one of the best trilogies I've ever read. I think it fits okay in the fantasy category. It's an Arthurian saga. It's about Arthur by Bernard Cornwell, who is amazing. This book is a masterpiece of characterization and storytelling. Um, it's it's one of the best books I've read in a really long time. You should read it immediately. That's That's all I have to say. He really pulls off a masterful balance of characterization, plot development, pacing, lore, and world building. The author achieves that coveted perfect balance of a story that is both driven by plot and characterization, culminating in a breathtaking resolution. The Winter King is told from a first-person perspective by an orphan raised within Merlin's estate. With our narrator, whose name is Derville, you will experience not only his growth as an observer and actor, 
and the main character in this Arthurian saga, but you'll see an entire cascade of character development among kings and druids and peasants and warriors and, and Arthur himself. Um, there is like a beauty and sadness and growth that follows all of these characters, along with the growth of medieval Britain itself. You'll learn to love and cherish Derval, not only as a narrator, but a man who grows through misery and loss and love and worship and war and all these awesome, just juicy things. You'll come away loving the main character, like he's a real person and not just a character on the page. The characterization of Arthur is really something special. While seeing himself as a pragmatic peacemaker, Arthur toes a very thin line of would-be ruler versus protector of the realm. He's both virtuous and villainous, as his peaceful idealism of brotherhood clashes with his unwillingness to give up his peripheral power. It's just, it's amazing. He believes his actions to be inherently in the best interests of uniting Britain, only if that unity includes himself as a major player. He is both heroic and likable, but he's also foolish and naive. And while he has maintained some civility with his countrymen, his very own foibles lead to the loss of the very men that he wishes to protect. Cornwell, the author, takes the iconic figure of Arthur and molded him into an epic hero full of folly and misguided idealism. He's truly a dynamic character. Here's a quote from Arthur from this book. I wanted to do such things, such great things. And in the end, it was I who betrayed them, wasn't I? That line just like sums up Arthur. And just to make something very clear, this book is brutal toward women. There is sexual assault, there's sex slavery, there's servitude, there's mass objectification of women everywhere. This book is raw, it's gritty, it's violent, it's stomach churning. All of this brutality toward women is true to the world building of the Dark Age era. I don't think it's overtly gratuitous or indulgent. In fact, the constant misogyny served to beautifully contrast the incredible women in this book. And I'm talking about, uh, I think it's pronounced Nimue, the character Nimue. She might be one of my favorite female characters I've ever read. She's a, a druid and an apprentice of Merlin, and she grows from a young sorceress into a really powerful mage. Um, she suffers every brutalization known to a woman, including starving to death on a prison in a on a prison on an isle. She represents the endurance and adaptability of women living under the unfettered unfettered tyranny of male uh, domination. There's this really great exchange between her and Arthur which emphasizes the misogyny of, of, of the man who is supposed to be the hero, Arthur. Uh, I'll just quote it. She was an ill-used woman, Arthur said. All women are, Nimoy said. No, Arthur insisted. Maybe most people are, but not all women any more than all men. Anyway, this is a story about a changing culture, changing power, changing religions. It's a culture clash of the Britons, the Saxons, and the Franks and the boiling over of their different power structures as manifested by their religions. At the forefront of this book is the ever-dueling exchange between the old world paganism versus the Christian upstarts. There is this deep identity crisis happening all over nascent England as these forces merge at the nexus of Britain uh, and Arthur and Merlin himself. Is there a magic system in these pages, perhaps, or is sorcery just another power structure of the Druids, keeping men in check by their superstitions and the fear of the unknown? The, the battles are incredible. There's tactics and strategy and bravery and cowardice are, are the, the story told within the, with, within the battles over the heart of Britain. You'll find honor within foes and brotherhood with old enemies. Oath-keeping is the fabric of civilization, the breaking of which causes alliances to topple. There's a lot more I can say about this book. 
but the Winter King is just an incredible story. I highly, highly re- recommend this to anyone. Um, and it's, I consider it to be a masterpiece. And I've read the entire trilogy, and it is amazing. Highly recommend it. The Winter King by Bernard Cornwall. Um, and it's part of the Warlord Chronicles. There you have it. The whole reason I actually even want to do a podcast is to talk about fantasy books. Uh, so let me know if you want me to keep including these fiction reviews in. Anyway, that's it. Bye.